Welcome to Grim Gossip. Before we start the show, I want to give a proper warning. The episode you are about to hear may include grim details about assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is about John George High Jr. He was born on July 24, 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire to his parents, John Robert and Emily High. John Sr. was a supervisor in the coal mines and Emily was a homemaker. Their family were members of the Plymouth Brethren, a super conservative Christian group. John Jr. was said to have been exceptionally bright. He became proficient on the piano, which he learned at home, and won scholarships to two different schools. Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, then to Wakefield Cathedral, where he became a choir boy. In 1926, when John was 17, he went on to be an apprentice for a firm to motor engineers and left his parents' house. He quit after a year and began advertising for insurance companies instead. In 1930, when he was 21, after four years of working there, he was fired after money began going missing from the cash box, and he was the prime suspect. On July 6, 1934, he got married to Beatrice Hamer, which is when he started his own business forging vehicle documents. In November of that year, he was caught and convicted of fraud and sentenced to 15 months in prison. Beatrice, who discovered she was pregnant with his child, gave birth while he was still in prison. But she gave their child up for adoption and decided to move on from John. When John was released from prison, Beatrice divorced him. Because of his actions that led to divorce, his super-conservative family excommunicated him. Upon release, John immediately started another business, this time with a partner. They began a dry-cleaning business that is said to have been quite successful until his business partner died in a car wreck. Then the business took a nosedive and eventually failed altogether. In 1936, John moved to London where he was able to get a job as a chauffeur to William McSwan and his parents Donald and Amy. They were wealthy owners of an amusement park and owned multiple properties. He also worked as a mechanic to the amusement park machines. He was so good at his job that the McSwans promoted him quickly. During his time with the McSwans, John tried to run another scam on the side. For this scam, John took on the fake name of William Adamson and began impersonating a solicitor from a prestigious firm. A solicitor is a legal practitioner dealing mostly in providing legal advice and conducting legal proceedings on behalf of the client. He began selling fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his deceased clients but was quickly found out when he misspelled the name of a city on his letterhead. He was tried in 1937 and was sentenced to hard labor for four years. The McSwans were sad to see him go, they just didn't know what for. He was released in 1940 but was caught stealing the same year and sent back to prison for an additional 21 months, being released in 1943. 
It was said that he spent his time in prison thinking about the victims and how he had regretted leaving them alive with the ability to accuse him. He came up with an idea to get rich quick instead of earning an honest living. He decided he would go after older rich women. He became inspired by French murderer Georges Alexander Surrette, who got rid of bodies using sulfuric acid. John tested this method on field mice and discovered it only took 30 minutes for their bodies to dissolve. He was convinced that if there was no body, there was no crime, so he couldn't get caught. Upon his release in 1944, he became an accountant with an engineering firm and rented a vacant basement space where he began setting up his workshop. On a night out at a pub, John happened to run into William McSwan. They sat and caught up for a while. At the time, William was working for his parents, collecting rent on multiple properties they owned. He decided to take John back to his parents' house to visit, and they were happy to see him. After weeks of regrowing this relationship, John decided to make his move. On September 6, 1944, while John and William were out for a drink, John decided to bring William back to his workshop to show off his inventions. It was here where John smashed William's skull in and placed his body in an acid-filled water butt, which is a large barrel, and left him there. John returned a few days later to find that William's body had dissolved for the most part, so he emptied the barrel into a manhole. He later went to see Williams's parents and told them William had gone into hiding in order to avoid the call-up for World War II, which, in the States, is the equivalent to our draft. He was able to keep the facade up for a while, pretending to be William, living in his house and collecting the rent for Williams's parents. He even sent the McSwans letters impersonating their son. He went on to sell Williams' things for fast cash, but panicked when the McSwans began wondering why their son had not returned home since the war was coming to an end. At this point, he decided to visit the McSwans in person. In July of 1945, he told them that William was back for a surprise visit and hiding in his workshop. He brought them to his workshop where William should have been, but instead of William, it was only John. He bludgeoned them both and disposed of their bodies in the same way. Still impersonating William, John was able to obtain legal possession of everything the McSwans owned and sold all of it, bringing in over 4,000 pounds, which is roughly 191,886 pounds in today's economy or 1,426,627 American dollars. He also collected their pension checks and sold their properties for additional money. He was able to live off this money for a while, but gambled a lot of it away. In 1947, the funds were beginning to dry up. In order to get more money to sustain his lifestyle, John went on another hunt. He came across a married couple Archibald and Rose Henderson. They were in the process of selling their home and already living in a flat located in the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. 
John was pretending to be a potential buyer for their house. After getting to know the couple and connecting with them over their love for music, he was invited to the Henderson's new flat to play the piano for their housewarming party. While he was there, he did some snooping and found a revolver, which he stole with the intent to use it in his future crimes. John later lured Archibald to his workshop where he claimed to have a new invention that he wanted to show him. On February 12, 1948, John drove Archibald to his workshop and shot him in the head with his own revolver. He then coaxed Rose into coming to the workshop, stating that Archibald had fallen terribly ill and she needed to come get him. When she arrived, John too shot her in the head. Before placing their bodies in acid, he stripped them naked and removed all their valuables. He forged their signatures to transfer possession of their property to himself, then sold all of their belongings, gaining 8,000 pounds while keeping their car and dog. He even paid up their hotel bill and left as if nothing happened. When he returned to his workshop a few days later, he discovered that one of Archibald's feet didn't quite make it into the acid and remained intact. But this didn't bother him. He dragged the barrel to a corner in the backyard and poured out the acid and partially dissolved bodies. He proceeded to impersonate the Hendersons in order to make it seem as though they were still alive, writing letters to Rose's brother, Berlin, to keep suspicions at bay. But when Berlin hadn't seen his sister in some time, he was preparing to go to the police. John was able to convince him that they had run away to South Africa because Archibald had performed an illegal abortion, but Berlin wasn't having it. Because there was a death of the family, he insisted the police locate his sister in order for her to attend this funeral. This frustrated John, and he began to plan out Berlin's murder in order to keep his secrets quiet. Right after the Henderson murders, in February 1949, John befriended a woman named Olive Duran Deacon in the Onslow Court Hotel, where he had been living for four years now, and her for six years. She was the widow of a war hero, an active suffragette, and an inventor herself. They often had small talk through lunch, dinner, or just in passing, so they were familiar with one another. At lunch on Monday, February 14th, they spoke during their meal, where John told Olive that he was an engineer and an inventor, which intrigued her. Olive had an idea she believed he could be of assistance with. She had designed artificial nails and asked John if he could help her improve this product so that she could make it marketable. He said he'd think about it. Four days later, on Friday, John agreed to help her. They drove to his workshop so she could see where he worked and what he could do. But instead, he shot her in the back of the head once she was inside. He removed all her jewelry clothes and fur coat before putting her in acid. He then drove back to the hotel and ate dinner. Unfortunately for him, Olive's disappearance was noticeable. When she missed breakfast the next morning, the other tenants were concerned and even asked John if he had seen her. He told them they had an appointment together, 
but lied and said she never showed up. The next day, pretending to be concerned for Olive's well-being, John approached another tenant, Mrs. Lane, to ask if there was any new news about the missing woman. She told him no, and that she was going to the police station that afternoon to file a report. John offered to go with her and drove them both to the Chelsea police station, where it said that Sergeant Lamborn was suspicious of John from the very beginning. On Monday morning, Scotland Yard was contacted regarding Olive's jewelry, and they were even provided a description, a suspect, and a criminal record. You see, that same Monday, just three days after murdering Olive, John went back to his workshop and dumped her dissolved body just outside the door. He then went to get her jewelry and fur coat appraised and sold, only 14 minutes away from his workshop. The police immediately set off to investigate John. They first went to get the jewelry and the fur coat. They discovered he had a rented property, which was the location of his workshop, and went to investigate it. When the police got to his workshop, they discovered there was sludge all over the outside of the building. When they found out it was acid, they had to cover their arms in Vaseline and wear rubber gloves and boots to protect themselves. In the sludge, they uncovered 28 pounds of body fat, three gallstones, part of a left foot, 18 fragmented bones, upper and lower dentures still intact, the handle of a red purse, and a lipstick container. John was located and arrested immediately. During the interrogation, John wasted no time and confessed to everything. He is said to have been very confident that he would get away with his crimes even though he confessed. Even asking if anyone ever got out of Broadmoor, which is a high security mental institution. John went to trial in 1949 and pleaded insanity. He claimed that five years prior to this, in 1944, he was in a car wreck where he obtained a head injury which caused bleeding in his mouth. This injury supposedly awakened religious nightmares from his childhood that made him thirst for blood. He said in court, quote, I saw before me a forest of crucifixes which gradually turned into trees. At first, there appeared to be a dew or rain dripping from the branches, but as I approached, I realized it was blood. The whole forest began to writhe in the trees, dark and erect, to ooze blood. A man went from each tree, catching the blood. When the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move." Unquote. John reiterated that he suffered from recurring nightmares due to his religious upbringing. He claimed to have filled a mug with the blood of his victims and drank it before putting them in their acid baths. His defense lawyer, Sir Maxwell Fife, called on many witnesses to attest to John's mental state. Henry Yellowlees, a chief medical officer, was on that list and he claimed that John has a paranoid constitution or paranoid personality disorder, saying, quote, The absolute callous, cheerful, 
bland and almost friendly indifference to the accused to the crimes which he freely admits to having committed is unique in my experience, unquote. The prosecutor, Sir Hartley Shawcross, urged the jury to reject John's insanity defense because he had acted with malice of forethought. The jury took no more than 10 minutes to convict John, completely rejecting his insanity plea. The jury found John guilty and he was sentenced to death. When the judge asked John if he had anything to say for himself, John supposedly cocked his head to the side and said, quote, nothing at all, unquote. On August 10, 1949, while John was waiting to be executed, he was served his last meal, which was a glass of brandy. A large, angry crowd surrounded the prison, awaiting his execution. He was hanged that day, finally ending his reign of terror. Items from this case are actually on display at the Museum of London. The grim relics on display for the public from the New Scotland Yard's infamous Black Museum are the gear John had to wear to protect himself from the acid, Olive's gallstones and dentures, the revolver he stole from Archibald, and John High himself. And that is where the case ends. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, there's many more to come. Hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications when new episodes drop. If you have any suggestions, send them my way at grimgossippod at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at grimgossippod. All websites used for the research is in the show notes if you guys want to take a deeper dive into this case. Thank you for listening. Until next time.